Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to this STS webinar on perioperative coronavirus vaccination, timing and implications. This webinar series runs every month and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website and STS YouTube channel. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our moderators for this session, Dr. Helen Marie Merritt Janor and Dr. Rakesh Arora. Dr. Merritt Janor, welcome and let me turn it over to you. Hello and thank you for joining us this evening. As uh, Michelle mentioned, I'm Dr. Helen Marie Merritt Janor. I'm an adult cardiothoracic surgeon practicing in Omaha, Nebraska. We're pleased to welcome you to this STS webinar series. We chose this topic as we know that CT surgery patients are at increased risk of disease severity from coronavirus disease. It's increasingly noted that there are several important factors to consider when choosing when and how to administer COVID vaccination in the perioperative period. With this in mind, members from the STS Council on the Clinical Practice and Member Engagement Operating Board, the STS Workforces on Critical Care, thoracic surgery and adult cardiac and vascular surgery, and the board of directors from the Canadian Society of Cardiac Surgeons, as well as experts in infectious disease, contributed to the guidance statement that is now in press entitled, Perioperative Coronavirus Vaccination, Timing and Implications, a Guidance Statement. I'm pleased to welcome my co-moderator, Dr. Rakesh Arora. Hi, good evening. My name is Rakesh Arora. I'm a cardiac surgeon intensivist at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg in Canada. It's a great pleasure to join uh, Helen Marie in this illustrious panel to follow as the chair of the workforce for critical care for the STS. In light of the raising and rising rates of severe COVID illness now into the fourth wave, particularly predominantly due to the Delta variant, we felt it was important and timely to bring the discussion back to the CT surgery community this evening. To that end, we have assembled a team of experts, which we'll introduce shortly, to participate in a roundtable discussion on the issues pertaining to timing, a vaccination and other important considerations, including booster vaccination, which I know is very topical this evening. We encourage all audience participation, uh, participants for this webinar to please post your questions in a Q&A panel. We will do our best to get to all of them through the course of the next hour. And now let's introduce our panel of experts. Hi, my name is Mara Antonoff. I'm a general thoracic surgeon at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. And hello, everybody. My name is Dave Aronoff. I'm the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Good evening, everyone. My name is uh, Adam Burdorf, and I'm an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist in Omaha, Nebraska. Good evening. I'm Dan Engelman. I'm an adult cardiac surgeon and professor of surgery at the University of Massachusetts in Bay State in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I also was the lead author of two of the prior guidance statements on how to deal with COVID during the peak of our pandemic. So let's get the questions going. Current data suggests that approximately 71% of the adult US population has received at least one vaccination. Hospitalization and intensive care cases are once again rising with a majority of sick patients being unvaccinated. So this uh, paper that you see on the screen here now for you, this uh, is the graphical abstract, the paper that's now in press and available in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery, as well as do this information rapidly evolving almost daily and sometimes it seems hourly. We do have this also posted on the COVID-19 resource page for the STS.org and we will hope to provide updates as we go forward. Um, the next guidance for this will be, um, for this will be in this rapid evolving area will be around areas of vaccination prior to and after cardiac surgery, as well as split dosing and in Baltimore populations, including immunocompromised patients. So let's kick it off with Dr. Aronoff. You're obviously very familiar with this topic, having studied viruses and vaccination, and in particular, the COVID vaccines. Can you lead us off in defining re reactogenicity and associated rates with each type of vaccine? Sure, yeah, absolutely an important issue. Uh, the fundamental basis of reactogenicity is we want to design vaccines that train our immune system, usually on some target. In the case of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, we're training our immune system to mount a vigorous immune response against the business end of the virus, the spike protein that is so important for the virus to attach to our cells and cause infection. And when we give people vaccines, um, and we saw this in our clinical studies, some people, but not all people, actually feel 
their immune system responding in a vigorous way to the, to the vaccine. Now, if somebody gets vaccinated and they don't experience local or systemic symptoms, that's okay. Our studies clearly still show that those individuals are protected from infection. But you can see on the slide here that there are systemic effects that many people, though not all people, will experience when they get vaccinated. With the two-dose mRNA vaccines, as you can see here, it's generally with the second dose that more people will feel it. I certainly did when I got my second dose of an mRNA vaccine, fevers the next day, shaking chills, myalgias, and fatigue. Some people have headache, you can have nausea, and we see similar effects with the highly reactogenic adenovirus vector vaccine, the one that we're using in the US is made by Janssen and J&J. &J. But, but it's important for people to understand that these are normal reactions to the vaccines. They're often treatable with medications like acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Yeah, so to that end, I think it's important to highlight that when we're talking about vaccination for the cardiothoracic patient, again, both the mRNA dose and the viral vector information shown for you there for the adverse effects. And on, with the available literature that we had, the writing team for the guidance document that we referred to really discussed around the issues about giving vaccination prior to um, their surgery, and more importantly, perhaps after the surgery, where they may have uh, an opportunity where they're, they're a period where their reactivity to the immune response, the vaccine may not be wholesome. And we'll come back and talk to this in a little bit. But the summated opinion basically is vaccination shouldn't occur in the immediate post-operative period for some of these reasons. One, to, again, to allow an immune response after surgery, which may be blunted, and two, to avoid confusion of some of these symptoms that might be confused with perioperative or post-operative complications. So to that end, I'm interested, how do we know if our post-op patient is ready for their vaccine? And importantly, what is the current thinking in the ID world regarding vaccination at the time of dismissal from the hospital? Right, yeah, really good question. And this continues to change a little bit as we see the urgency of getting people vaccinated. So. On, on the medicine service, we're pretty aggressive at our hospital of getting the first dose of a vaccine into individuals who need vaccination prior to them leaving the hospital. With surgical patients, first of all, as was alluded to, we really do wanna make sure that patients are out of that post-operative window where we might see fevers or see things that would uh, alert us to be looking for infection. And if we use a vaccine that then induces systemic effects, that can be confusing and, and may lead to doing expensive workups or holding people in the hospital longer than they need to. So in general, um, you know, we would want to wait for a post-operative patient to A, be out of a critical care situation if possible, and B, be, be at a place where we're not expecting to see post-operative infections or any sort of post-operative fever before giving them a vaccine. And for some people that may be before they leave the hospital and for others, it may be after, but that's where we have to really have conversations with our surgical colleagues. So Dan, I, I see your hand up. So we're gonna to point to you next. I wanna get Mara to weigh in as well, what you're doing to your patients. So let's start so, with Dan first. My question was for Dave. So you, you address the obvious question that I don't want to have my post-op day five cabbage patient have shaking chills and then try to send them home and go, well, it was just the vaccine from yesterday. That we get. My question is, is there any data surrounding the fact that maybe the patients will not mount an immune response secondary to their having been in that post-op stage? Yeah, really good question. I mean, certainly in sort of broader terms, people who are post-operative from major surgery uh, sort of like what we see um, in some of our medical patients who are in who who are, who are very severely ill in critical care, that their immune system may be suppressed during that period of time, and that they may not be able to mount a great response to a vaccine. We don't have a lot of data driving our decision making around the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, which puts us a little bit on our heels that way. But certainly, um, for for very critically ill patients you know, we may want to think twice and we do have to balance that a bit with how much disease activity is out and about how likely are these patients to come back for a vaccine? Are they very reliable? Do they have a follow-up appointment schedule and th those sorts of issues? So Mara, maybe I'll ask you the same question. What are you doing for the elective thoracic surgery patient, both in the preoperative and postoperative phase? And maybe we'll focus on the preoperative 
phase first. Are you requiring patients to come in with vaccination prior to the surgery akin to how we get people to stop smoking before their operation? Well, that's a great question. We are not requiring it, though we are certainly encouraging it if it is feasible. Um, we have to recognize that it's not the same thing, you know, not getting a vaccine. It's not the same thing as being a current smoker at the time of lung surgery. We know that smoking results in bad outcomes at the time of surgery, but being vaccinated or not being vaccinated doesn't exactly translate to bad outcomes, though a COVID infection does. But we do recognize that not all of our patients can get vaccinated before surgery, either due to induction agents or participation in clinical trials. Um, and so we understand that they aren't all able to get vaccinated because of those caveats. We do, however, require all patients to be tested, but not vaccinated. So in terms of the timing, if we're scheduling someone for cancer surgery, with adequate time that we can get them vaccinated in between, we absolutely do encourage it. We'd like that vaccination to occur uh, at least two weeks before surgery. And we recognize that, that, you know, of course we want them to have two doses if they're getting um, one of the vaccines that requires two doses. And if they can only get one in, then that's okay. But of course we do want them to get vaccinated if possible. But if it's not feasible, we do wait until at least two weeks after surgery, recognizing that our patients who have malignancies tend to be uh, pretty reliable in terms of coming back to clinic and their, their desire to be seen in the outpatient setting. And so we don't have a lot of attrition or loss of patients to follow up after cancer surgery. We just recognize that the more people we can get vaccinated earlier, the better. So if we have that opportunity preoperatively, we certainly do. If we can get one dose before and one dose after we do, um, if we're operating more urgently and we have to do them both afterward, then we do so. But it's really making sure that there's a plan to get them vaccinated um, in some way or another. So we do speak about it uh, with, with every patient um, in terms of, of getting it before surgery if possible or shortly thereafter if it's not. Yeah, I think you're right. There's good data that suggests even one dose is protective and you know the guidelines have really become less stringent on the exact timing of the second dose of the vaccination allowing a period of variability. Um, changing gears a little bit to Dr. Burdorf, you are obviously an expert in heart transplantation, advanced failure options. Um, and I'm curious if you all have a policy regarding the COVID vaccine in your advanced heart failure therapy program. Yeah, so this was a hot topic when the vaccine came out because obviously prior to COVID, um, our infectious disease doctors played a significant role in guiding our patients to the importance of routine vaccination. Uh, so we had a pretty robust discussion when the COVID-19 uh, vaccines became available about whether or not we are going to, you know, kind of make our patients get vaccinated. Fortunately for us, we haven't had to uh, go to that extreme. We have good uh, relationships with most of our patients. We've followed them from a long time. They trust our medical judgment. And so in those that have had some hesitancy, uh, we've been able to talk them through some of their concerns. And, and uh, we haven't had any problems with patients getting vaccinated prior to being listed or while being listed for transplant. Um, so we don't have a policy right now requiring that, understanding there may be some uh, one-off situations where you know, for whatever reason they can't get vaccinated, but obviously we strongly encourage it for the same reason we strongly encourage other vaccinations. So Adam, Adam can I ask you another question? With sort of rising concerns around, particularly in the, in, in the younger patients with pericarditis and myocarditis that's associated with the vaccine, perhaps itself or others, does your approach differ for these patients versus more traditional forms of this disease when they present to hospital? What's been your approach for that? Sure. First, I would say that our approach, we haven't seen a whole lot of this in the community. As we know, the incidence is actually uh, uh, very low, um, whereas the incidence of myocarditis associated with COVID-19 is likely higher. So we haven't seen a lot of this in our uh, hospital, but we know that from data from the rest of the country uh, and around the world, uh, um, the, there is some association with myocarditis or pericarditis associated with vaccination. Um, our our uh, management has not differed. You know, these patients are assessed the same way, looking for Chaponin elevation, EKG changes, um, uh, echocardiographic findings that would suggest myocarditis. And then in most cases, these patients are going to MRI. Um, uh, but again, it's mostly supportive care, uh, getting them on guideline-directed medical therapy, and then following them expectantly until they recover. Uh, but again, the, the incidence that we see in our community is exceedingly low, and it has not been that common. So I just wanted to highlight this, this one uh, infographic that's come through from the Canadian Society of, uh, uh, sorry, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society Rapid Response Team 
that's put as a guidance statement for this on uh, patients presenting with symptoms consistent with pericarditis or myocarditis. And this is available now in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology as well with the reference for you there at the bottom. I think what I might do is just take away the large screen for a minute so we can all see each other and carry on the next part of the conversation there. Great, so this is actually a really nice segue into the next topic that we wanna explore, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia and thrombosis, or VIT for short. Dan and Dave, can you take us down this road and talk to us about the similarities and differences between HIT, which we commonly deal with as CT surgeons, and VIT, which is a new adventure for us? Dave, I defer to you. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is something that we see not terribly infrequently because we use so much heparin prophylactically and occasionally therapeutically. And so we do see uh, thrombocytopenia often in concert with thromboses. Sometimes these are thromboses that we're treating or trying to prevent. Um, but I think a key to this is that we can recognize it, test it, test for it. And also when we stop heparin, this generally gets better. What we've seen with uh, the vaccine-induced thrombosis and thrombocytopenia or VITT is that first it took us a while to recognize that this was associated with these adenovirus vector vaccines. And we've seen it both initially in Europe with the AstraZeneca two-dose vaccine and then later in the U.S. with the Johnson & Johnson. A couple things to recognize. One is that it differs based on the demographics of the people getting the vaccine. It's more common in women of reproductive age. We don't fully understand that, but women between the ages of 18 and 49 are more common to get vaccine-induced thrombosis and thrombocytopenia from the adenovirus vector vaccines, and yet it is still very rare. In that group, it happens about nine cases per 1 million doses of the J&J &J vaccine, for example, that are administered, but the cases can be really severe, and it's not a matter of stopping an anticoagulant and seeing that things get better. And so, you know, there have been small numbers of patients who have died from that complication. It is really paradoxical um, and, and extremely rare, much rarer than HIT. So, so sorry, if I could just pull in, there's a question to this uh, related from uh, a B. Silvius in the question answer area. Post-vaccine, he's saying, or she's saying, they're seeing more thrombocytopenia post-operatively. Has anyone else had that experience? in your practice or in your centers? I think that HIT is a major problem after cardiac surgery and that we are more attuned to it than we used to be. And hence we're seeing more of it. That's my experience in my own personal practice. It incurs in one to 2% of patients following cardiac surgery. Uh, and it's often underappreciated, undertreated and can be uh, life-threatening. So what I really wanna ask Dave though is, should we should we really be worried about you know vaccine induced thrombocytopenia and thrombosis and pericarditis and myocarditis? I mean, it strikes me that the risks of a long haul symptom from COVID or even a short term symptom of COVID far outweighs the tiny tiny incidence of these complications from the vaccines, and that it's almost like we're displacing our concerns. Yeah, no, I think that's a really really important point. We, we need to remember that so far in the United States, over 600,000 people have died from COVID-19. And, uh, you know, basically out of every 100 people who we diagnose with COVID-19, one to two of them are dying of the disease. Somewhere between two and three of them per hundred are ending up in the hospital. And many more than that are, are symptomatic. And 20 to 40% of people who have COVID-19 are being left with chronic symptoms, some of which are really, really long lasting and can really affect quality of life. What we're talking about with these very rare events, I think is a, a real testament to how closely we're looking for effectiveness and safety signals in these vaccines. In the US as of today, we've given almost 420 million doses of these vaccines to almost 170 million unique people. And when 400 million doses are given under the watchful eye of every person who gets the dose, every person who's administering the dose, the FDA, the CDC, uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, we're going to find lightning strike types of rare 
adverse events. And that's exactly what we are finding. So for example, when it comes to myocarditis, uh, that has clearly been shown to be more common, even though extremely rare with the mRNA vaccines rather than the adenovirus vector vaccines. Um, the highest risk for myocarditis, and I would emphasize that those cases are largely self-limited, are in males between the ages of 12 and 17, where the risk is somewhere around 70 events per 1 million doses administered. COVID-19 as a disease itself, in that age bracket of 12 to 17-year-old males, causes myocarditis on the order of 450 cases per million. Still very, very uncommon, but a lot more common than we would be seeing with the vaccine. Uh, that said, the risk that I will get struck by lightning in my lifetime is closer to one in 3,000. My risk of getting struck by lightning this year is closer to one in 700,000. And yet I've been known to walk outside when it rains and I'm not particularly worried about getting struck by lightning. And so I think that it's really important that we use these finds of very rare adverse events like VIT or Guillain-Barre or myocarditis and pericarditis to refine the way we advise people. Uh, reproductive age women might prefer to get an mRNA vaccine, for example. Um, I think that's perfectly acceptable, but we should not perseverate on those very, very rare lightning strike risks when the reality is, is that COVID-19 is debilitating lots of people and killing many people, which is of course the reason why we're here today. And you, you sort of answered my, um, my earlier question or comment about which vaccine patients who have a history of HIT um, or even recent cardiac surgery, if we should be considering that at all, um, you know, any of these, these side effects or these adverse effects that are rare in nature. But, you know, if we have a really rare chance of um, a patient with prior HIT developing VIT, should we choose an mRNA vaccine over another option? Yeah, great question. This table that, that you're showing uh, comes from the CDC. I like it because it's a really good summary. And you can see at the top of the table where if there's someone with a history of HIT and that episode has been within the last three months, probably better to risk mitigate by heading towards the mRNA vaccines. On the other hand, if it's more than three months out, again, with the risk being so low with the adenovirus vector vaccine, if that's the vaccine that the patient prefers to get or is the one that's available, the benefit to them of being immunized is so much higher than the putative risk that it's certainly fine to use that vaccine. So David, just there's a question that's come up in the QA here about the timing of the third dose prior to open heart surgery. And we'll come back to boosters in a minute, but it may be helpful perhaps just give us a little crash course on antibodies and how they relate to how we should be screening our patients preoperatively. Dan, I know you have some thoughts on this as well. So I'll start with David first and maybe go to you next, Dan. Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, it is becoming abundantly clear through research studies that there are neutralizing antibodies that are raised by these vaccines that correlate with protection from getting symptomatic COVID or ending up in the hospital. However, most of those research type of platforms for measuring neutralizing antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 are different from the commercially available antibodies right now. In fact, some of the commercially available antibody tests don't actually look for antibodies against the spike protein, which are the antibodies that are elicited by the vaccines. And so I've had patients who said, hey, my, vac my antibody level is zero, but actually they're being uh, measured against the nuclear protein of the, the nucleocapsid protein of the virus and not the spike protein. And so we really can't make heads or tail of that in terms of their vaccine response. Also with the commercially available tests, there's really no standard by which we can say, oh, if your antibody level is above X units, that means you're protected. And if it's below those units or even undetectable or below the limits of detection, that means that you're now vulnerable to infection. And so I think a big challenge for us is to harmonize the, the regulations around what tests are really valid to predict that someone is or is not immune to getting infected 
with SARS-CoV-2. So the way that things stand as of today, we really can't be advising people to use commercially available antibody tests after vaccination to drive decisions about timing of surgery or additional doses before surgery. And that's independent of the new guidance from FDA around third doses for highly immunocompromised people, where again, we're not driving that decision based on their antibody levels, we're driving it based on their medical history and condition of immunosuppression. Dan, you had some thoughts on this as well. I did. So Dave, I'm slightly going to push back on some of the data that came out a few months ago that I found very concerning regarding patients who receive solid organ transplants. In our case, we're most interested in the heart. We're a little cardiocentric in this group, but kidney, liver, regardless, these patients had an incredibly high incidence of no antibodies. And it looked as though from preliminary data that a third mRNA vaccine was actually giving them a robust response, which I personally believe is kind of what drove what we're seeing now with all the booster approvals. And that's sort of where I think the only role has been historically for antibody testing. Now, I completely agree with you that with the new guidance, um, that should all be on hold. What are your thoughts there? Oh, I completely agree. I think the thing that, I mean, we're, we're really on the same page. Those studies that looked at antibody responses after additional doses of vaccine were using laboratory calibrated, validated antibody responses that looked at neutralizing activity. We're just not using those assays commercially. And for somebody who lives in a rural community or a city here or a city there and goes to their local pharmacy and gets an antibody test, we really don't know how that compares to what, they, what we saw in those studies. And yet, if they're a kidney transplant recipient, we're going to give them a third dose regardless. We're not going to say, well, that's that pharmacy-based antibody test looked kind of positive, so we're going to hold back on that additional dose. That's really not our practice right now. And I think it's still advisable to offer them additional doses uh, independent of what they have in their hand in terms of a test result. Adam and Mara, what do we need to know about specific populations like thymectomy patients or prior patients? Um, how do their vaccine needs differ from a normal population? Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, happy to answer. So, you know, as, as aforementioned, it, it seems as though from previous studies and then studies that came out this summer that the immune response in those whom are immunocompromised may not be as robust as the general population. And what's um, one of the very neat things about working in uh, transplantation and maybe some maybe sometimes frustrating is our patients are very educated. So, uh, you know, as early as this month, I had patients coming to me discussing specifically the Israeli study showing that the immune response to two, two doses of vaccine uh, certainly was inadequate versus a third uh, dose to try to generate that response. And so patients had been coming and asking for this, asking for antibody testing to see if they mounted a response. And we really didn't know how to respond to that, but I think with what the FDA um, uh, came out with last week has really helped us guide our patients in saying, yes, a third um, uh, uh, shot will helpfully help you mount that appropriate or necessary immune response to protect you. As we know, our patients who are immunocompromised for whatever reason are at some of the highest risks for adverse outcomes. We've certainly seen that in our hospital with transplant patients um, developing COVID-19 and not only uh, succumbing uh, and, and dying because of it, but also having significant comorbidities, respiratory complications, neurologic complications down the road. So I think this is important to understand, get our patients this uh, third shot and see if we can help prevent further uh, poor outcomes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, even in clinic today, I had several patients who are currently undergoing treatment for cancer, asking about whether they qualify for a third, uh, a third dose. And we talked a lot about you know, how we would work that timing and with their current cancer therapy. But I, I think it's important for us to disseminate the message to our patients th that they do qualify for the situation and what the advantages are. I think, you know, as a thoracic surgeon, it's also very important for me. And I think for, you know, STS members who, who take care of patients who may also have reduced lung capacity because they had a bilobectomy or, you know, they've had some other pulmonary resection where they don't have the same lung capacity, you know, and we also know that many patients with cardiovascular and thoracic diseases have, may have limited pulmonary reserve due to previous smoking history and a variety of other reasons. These are folks for whom a, a COVID infection is actually 
really highly dangerous, more so for them than the, than the average population, not just because of their immune response, but because of their cardiopulmonary status in addition to that. And so it's for that reason that I think it's important for us to talk to all of our patients about the risk of COVID and the benefit of vaccination, even those who may not qualify for the third dose, even for these cancer patients who may be two years disease-free and are coming back for surveillance imaging. You know, we all chatted about this the other day, but it's really important to me to keep pushing the idea of vaccination, even to folks who may initially be reluctant. And I know it gets old. I know it gets tiring for us to maybe kind of keep preaching to people who don't want to hear it. But I think it's important for us to recognize that regardless of the rationale for someone's opposition to vaccination, they really highly respect our opinions as their cardiac surgeons and their thoracic surgeons and their care providers. And even if they are initially reluctant to vaccination because of alternative sources of information that they may have heard, they're surprisingly willing to listen to the person whose hands have been inside their body or held their heart or held their lungs. And so I, I just, I guess that would be my other message to people on the webinar, members of STS, that you know, please don't underestimate how much your patients value your input and your expertise. And even if they have people in their world telling them that they shouldn't get vaccinated, you can sway a few of them and change a few of their minds just by the mere um, fact that you've already been inside their chest cavity. And so that's a really important point, uh, Mara. That, and then Dan, you had your hand up. I think you may have something to respond to that as well. I was actually just going to mimic that. And I'm, I'm thinking it should be part of the multidisciplinary rounds that we really need to know the vaccination status. That's my problem on rounds. I walk in the patient's room. They tell me post-up day X from X, this is going on. These are the issues. These are the barriers for discharge. I almost need to really hear, and they are not vaccinated. And I kind of need to spend a little time maybe privately after rounds and figure it out. Because as Mara points out, we have a little more power than we think. And it turns out when you really delve into it, there's usually some horrible misinformation they heard somewhere and you can turn, turn. I think we can save lives. That's my two cents. Uh, what do other people think? So Adam, you don't, you don't necessarily have your hands inside someone's chest cavity, but you certainly have an intimate relationship with many of your heart failure patients. What's your, what's your take on this? Yeah, I hundred percent agree. You know, uh, our relationship with our patients, you know, we followed them when they had heart failure for years. We followed them as they uh, underwent, you know, an LVAD. We followed them post-transplant. So these are patients that we have relationships with. And I think we hit on the head earlier, there's a lot of misinformation. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, Facebook and TikTok experts out there who get their information from really poor sources. And we have a duty to um, encourage vaccination, but to educate them and why it's important, because this is information that maybe they disseminate to their family as well. So I 100% agree. You know, we've done a really good job at our institution of highlighting who's COVID vaccine, vaccinated right on the front of our um, electronic medical records. So it's, it's right there. It's not hidden under immunizations. It's right there so we can see who's been vaccinated so we can have this discussion with them. Like I pointed out earlier, our patients that are immunocompromised have some of the worst outcomes when it comes to COVID-19. And so, it, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say malpractice, but we're certainly not doing our due diligence by not talking about the importance of this uh, in, in our patients and our patient population. So I'm going to ask a question. It's not um, maybe a bit of an audible here, but on along the same lines, and we've been talking about the patients and their families. What about healthcare providers who take care of the CT surgery patient? Should they be required to be vaccinated to work in and with these vulnerable patients? What are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, as an infectious disease expert, I can tell you that my society, as well as lots of medical societies, came out at the end of July very, very strongly to say frontline healthcare workers need, with a capital N, to be vaccinated. And I think that we, we owe it to our the people for whom we care not to play a role in somebody's death by being a vector for transmission of a virus that absolutely is lethal. And so, yes, is I think the short answer uh, to that question from my perspective. All right, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that I, I think it's incredibly important. I, I know that some of our institutions are limited due to government affiliation with being able to enforce it, but I, I wish that we could enforce it. And in fact, I, I met a patient today who had a request in, in this individual's medical record to not be cared for by any individuals while in the hospital who were not vaccinated. I'm not wow. sure how much we can enforce that because we can't ask about the vaccination status of the employees, but I thought, well, that's a great idea. I would request the same thing if I were in her shoes. I mean, I wish that we could promise that to our patients. It's 
unfortunate that you know we we aren't able to require it necessarily in in some places where we have certain government and political affiliation and it's outside of our control but i 100 agree with what's been said it's our duty to protect these patients and to serve them and to make them healthier and stronger and certainly not to be the 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 vector and then the source of, of their of their demise so i 100 support what's been said David, there's a question here from the Q&A here. Is any research regarding in-hospital transmission of COVID from healthcare staff? Yeah, really good question. Uh, so early in the pandemic, yes, that was something that has been documented in some uh, outbreaks. We all continue to see patients who have been in the hospital for a while, tested negative on admission, and then end up with COVID in the hospital. And we have struggled at times to understand where that came from. So what we're trying to do, of course, is make sure that we do everything we can to limit the risk that the call is coming from inside the house, that there's somebody who's bringing the virus from the workplace in. Um, it, you know, it, but sometimes it's just really, really hard to, to figure that out. But yes, there have been documented cases of healthcare workers transmitting SARS-CoV-2 to patients, unfortunately. So this is a really good segue to some of the questions that we're seeing in the QA around the topic of boosters, I guess, and particularly for healthcare workers that may be a vector, as we've just talked about. Dan, you've recently shared some information with us regarding concerns of the efficacy of the currently available mRNA vaccines, particularly with the Delta variant. Perhaps you want to provide some commentary on that. Well, it's my impression that everything changed when Barnstable County, Massachusetts reported the Provincetown data that showed that patients or people who are fully vaccinated could very easily transmit the virus to others. I think that's when everything changed. Yes, we knew that they could get sick and have, quote, breakthrough infections, as you call them. And yes, we knew that they probably weren't going to end up on a ventilator or even be admitted to the hospital. But I don't think everyone appreciated how easily this was transmissible in fully vaccinated individuals. That's my two cents. David, am I correct at all that that's sort of a pivot point in the history of this virus? Absolutely. Yeah, spot on. I mean, Delta is a game changer. And that report out of Barnstable, I think, was, was really a wake up to all of us. And, and now we're seeing data, even a bunch of studies came out yesterday that show that indeed there is waning immunity to getting infected with SARS-CoV-2 over time after vaccination. Those studies are now showing that in the era of Delta, it's not entirely clear that this, that the, the infections we're seeing in previously vaccinated people with Delta is special because of Delta or simply effect of their immunity waning, but it's probably a combination of both. The good news, if there is any, uh, is that the vaccines are still showing incredibly durable protection against hospitalization and death, even eight to 10 months out, and even very clearly smack in the middle of the Delta outbreak. But getting infected, uh, which we knew could happen in vaccinated people, is definitely happening more frequently in the era of Delta. And studies are showing, as Barnstable was probably one of the most important first ones, that if we are vaccinated and if we get infected with the Delta variant, at the time we're diagnosed, our viral load seems to be the same as even if we were not vaccinated. A recent study in Singapore that actually monitored those viral loads by PCR over time does suggest that if you're vaccinated, you clear the infection more quickly, the viral load drops more quickly than if you're not vaccinated. But gosh, it was discomforting to see in a number of studies that vaccinated people infected with Delta at the time of diagnosis seem to have a lot of virus. And, and that probably explains those transmission events and led certainly to the CDC saying, you know what, if you're vaccinated, you still need to be wearing masks indoors and you still need to be respecting distance and doing the things that are not vaccine-based to limit risk of transmission. Uh, when it comes to booster vaccines, there so there has been some discussion about um, the differences between some of the mRNA vaccines and protection that they provide from Delta. If I got a Pfizer vaccine to start with, should I get a Pfizer booster or should I try to get a Moderna booster? Does it seem that having split dosing or um, double 
double coverage is better for Delta. Yeah. Well, the, you know, you're probably referring to that Mayo study that came out very recently that really looked like the Moderna vaccine was more durable of a response over time than the Pfizer. One caveat that they point out in the discussion of that paper is that the Moderna vaccine has a higher dose than the Pfizer vaccine. And so if we assume that they actually are equivalent vaccines, it may simply be that you're getting two doses at a higher level with Moderna than with the Pfizer. That's not entirely clear, but I think it's an important thing. Our immune systems are pretty smart. And when we get exposed to an antigen uh, an additional time, we get really, really strong booster responses. And at this point, it's really hard to say that if, if you got Moderna, that you absolutely need to get that vaccine, or if you got J&J, you need the J&J, because mix and match studies are, are showing, I think, pretty clearly that you can mix and match vaccines. And because they all target the spike protein, they're all doing a real, relatively good job of getting a massive immune boost whether it's an mRNA vaccine after an adenovirus vaccine or two adenovirus vaccines or two mRNA vaccines or three in this case. And so I think when it comes to boosters, it's going to be similar to how we rolled out vaccines at the beginning, which is get the one that you can get. It's likely that the FDA is going to start with mRNA vaccines. It may turn out to be a bit of a a rounding error, whether it really matters if you are getting Moderna, 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 or Moderna, Moderna, Pfizer. But, you know, we, we, we will have to wait for some more data to really say firmly one is right and one is wrong. So for the panel, again, just a dovetail into this question from a question from the Q&A panel. Can you make any recommendations regarding the timing of the third dose, or even if you haven't had a third dose, and flu shots as we hand into the flu season? Yeah, well, the CDC initially said you should wait two weeks after your COVID vaccine to get any kind of other vaccine because we weren't sure about side effects yet. That has changed. And the CDC clearly says you're welcome to get any vaccine in addition to your COVID vaccine at the time of your COVID vaccine. And I would imagine that that's going to be the same with the additional doses, although that hasn't been made public yet. But, you know, if if people... Uh, people will have to understand that in terms of reactogenicity, if you get a flu shot in one arm and a COVID vaccine in the other, it is more likely that you're gonna be under the weather for a few days after that. And for some people, they just can't do that because of work or other reasons, and they may wanna stagger those. Uh, but for others who can't come back and while you have them there and you know you have one chance, you may wanna just do both. We certainly want a flu season like the one we just went through, which was a combination of getting people vaccinated, but also wearing masks, et cetera. Um, the timing of the third dose or the booster doses, right now it seems from what we've seen in the public that it's gonna be based on eight months out from the previous vaccines, which will probably start with older adults living in long-term care facilities, the staff who work there, frontline healthcare workers. But this is a lot gonna be on the honor system. And I'm sure a lot of people will show up at their local vaccine clinic and say, I'm in one of those groups, I got mine eight months ago or whatever, and they'll get it. And in reality, it wasn't really eight months, but that's, you know, look, we just need to get people boosted. And that may be the, the, the system that works the best. Perfect. Um, there's um, another question that's related, but slightly different. Um, in this era now of theoretically post-vaccine, which we heard we're gonna need some boosters, and as we go into another wave of COVID, are there things different we should be doing in the post-operative phase of care um, to and things we should watch for that we should recommend for uh, this particular uh, question? Maybe Dan, I'll start with you for that one. Uh, well, so I just have a very low threshold to send a PCR on my uh, patients. Um, it's not like the first and second waves where we didn't have enough testing, we didn't have enough PPE, and we really didn't know what we were dealing with. Now, uh, we have much more rapid turnaround, fast, accurate tests with excellent sensitivity and specificity. So I have much greater control of my patient population, who actually has it, who doesn't, who's exposed. Uh, and my short answer is if you have a post-operative patient, uh, who has either an unexplained uh, infiltrate, an unexplained fever, um, maybe had an exposure that they let you know about just before they came to the hospital. I, I test them uh, frequently and often. Mar, how about for the thoracic patient? Anything else from the, in the perioperative or postoperative phase you think that is important to consider? 
Um, well, just, I mean, we're, we're still testing all of our patients preoperatively. So of course, if there's anything unusual that unexpected after surgery, we, we, we might consider retesting them, but you know, we've, we've been very diligent about preoperative testing. Adam, how about for the heart failure patient? Uh, very similar. So, you know, all of our patients that come to the hospital get tested. And as our hospital has liberalized our visitor policy somewhat over the summer, we realize that there's a slightly higher risk of transmission between family visiting, et cetera, although we've limited our visitors. So yeah, I think it's just about recognizing the chance that a patient could get it while they're in the hospital, um, being diligent about testing those people if we're worried about that to protect the rest of our patients. I'm curious how quickly you all are able to get um, get testing results. I, I would say that for us, it has varied quite a bit throughout the last, you know, I don't know, what has it been a year and a half now? It, it initially took quite some time and then it suddenly was very, very quick. And then every time it feels like we have, you know, kind of a, 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 a spike, you know, and there's more tests pending, sometimes they can get delayed to the point where we need more lead in time for our preoperative patients as well as our inpatients. I'm just curious what different experiences are in different systems in terms of how long it takes. So I'm a couple hours in my hospital. Yeah, we're pretty fast still in our turnaround time. I mean, that could definitely change as COVID rates are going up, but right now we're still, we're still within hours. Yeah. We, we, some, I mean, we, we are, are, we are told that for, patients who are getting it preoperatively, if they ideally get it two to three days beforehand, but if they get it the day before, if it's not done by reasonably early in the morning, we are concerned that we won't have it before, you know, it's time to roll back to the OR. So, I mean, I think there are cases where we can expedite it. And certainly when we have employee post-travel testing, we find out the results pretty quickly. So, I think it may, may vary depending on the circumstance, whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic. We actually have two separate testing for symptomatic or asymptomatic, and our symptomatic ones seem to come back faster, which is obviously appropriate because we want to identify it in folks who are symptomatic. I don't know if you all separate symptomatic and asymptomatic in different testing. Well, it's an interesting concept as we talk about vaccinated folks being able to shed the virus at similar rates. So I would say um, in terms of treatment, it probably makes sense to continue that sort of triaging of the test. But um, I think if there's clinical concern or, you know, travel status, um, things like that, healthcare workers that need to know their, their status, I think that's probably, we're learning a lot that, that we can shed asymptomatically just as well as people who are symptomatic. Correct me if I'm wrong there, David. No, I mean, this is the nefarious aspect of this infection is that a lot of the transmission occurs silently in the absence of symptoms because people can shed a lot of virus in the absence of symptoms for sure. So one of my concerns is twofold. It's uh, we're seeing patients in that window, they come in negative, but as I tell all my patients and I keep repeating to my patients, my, uh, my care team, my nurses, my residents, my fellows, the same thing. And this is my impression, Dave, tell me if I'm wrong, but all a negative test tells you is that you did not have COVID five days ago. There's a 95% chance you did not have COVID five days ago. That's about what I think it tells you. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've really hit the nail on the head. What you know is what was in their nose at the time of the test, and that can change quickly uh, with COVID. And, and we certainly see that even more so with the less sensitive antigen tests. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, all we can say is a positive test result is probably the most helpful because we generally can rely on that. A negative test is reassuring in somebody with no exposures and no symptoms, but it is not a guarantee. But with the high prevalence now across this country of COVID, uh, in my uh, test center right now, it's 6% positivity, and I follow it on a daily basis, and I know <laughs> right. you are much higher than that. Yeah. We have to assume that a negative test really is not at all clear, and these patients in my hospital are not wearing masks in their rooms. Now, the only thing I would say to sort of uh, is that that Delta has changed is that five days is probably too long of a window. Um, you know, people on average are getting symptoms with Delta on day four after infection and really probably within 48 to 72 hours, they should have detectable virus if they have Delta. 
Well, that's at least that's that's a positive. But I'm I'm a little concerned with, for instance, our rounding teams. You know, we all practice perioperative um, care, and it's it's a tight group. I mean, it's residents, fellows, uh, anesthesiologists, surgeons standing next to a nurse coordinator. I mean, we are seven people surrounding a computer on wheels, so tight, wearing surgical masks. I just feel like we're a moving vector. We almost need to take a step back to what we were doing during the worst of COVID and we're not doing it yet. We're almost a little like in denial, maybe. Um, I'm speaking for myself. Anyone else have that feeling? I, I think the sense that what happened at least after the second and then third wave that we all got a little lax, didn't we? In terms of we felt well, we're through it and we may not be. And I think hypervigilance, even as we go through probably countless different waves and variants will be important. Um, Helen Marie, as a, the author of our, of our uh, guidance documents, a couple of questions from the QA panel here that I think uh, for some people who may have joined a little bit late as well as a pointed question around timing a vaccine prior to surgery and specifically around should we be delaying elective valve or cabbage or thoracic surgery? And if so, for how long? Yeah, great question. And that was one of the meat and potatoes part of the paper that we really wanted to tackle to provide some guidance for cardiothoracic surgeons. So the recommendation of the guidance suggests that patients should try to complete a full vaccination series, if at all possible, before any elective surgery that's not time sensitive. Um, and that's because clinical trials demonstrate that efficacy against COVID-19 occurs about two weeks following complete vaccination. So you're going to get the most protection at that point in time. But if you have surgeries that are time sensitive and you can't afford to wait a full month's time to complete that, as Mara mentioned earlier, a single dose of vaccine as early as possible before surgery should be considered. And studies suggest that protection starts approximately 10 to 14 days after that single dose. Perfect. Anyone else have a different comment or opinion of, of what they're advising their patients? And how about those patients, uh, uh, Dr. Merritt, who um, come in with asymptomatic positive COVID tests to the clinic? You know, they just show up and you're like, oh boy. You know, right. no exposure, nothing. It's just positive. How long to wait? I mean, uh, can we go over that? Yeah, absolutely. So the initial guidance says that if patients are symptomatic, you wait until that period of uh, being asymptomatic has, or of being symptomatic has resolved and you wait several weeks following that. If patients were severely ill with COVID, you should wait a longer period of time for several reasons. Um, one is because they are still going to have a SERS response or, response or a blunted immune response, and they can become even sicker following surgery. They're still recovering from their initial surge or from their initial uh, COVID illness. I think this is still an area um, where there's a lot of varying ideas on this. Um, in our paper, we recommended the, the suggestions that, that I just shared. Um, I'd be interested to hear what other folks are doing at their institutions though in real life. For folks who have an asymptomatic test, so they show up for their preoperative test and surprisingly find that it's positive, we wait 20 days. I'm not sure exactly which data were used to support that decision, but that's an institutional policy that we wait 20 days for any other appointments or visits or interventions. For um, folks who are um, symptomatic, certainly, it's a case-by-case -case basis. We want people to be fully recovered and resume their normal lung capacity in addition to their normal you know, immune response. So that's our, how we handle it. David, what are the recommendations you're doing at Vanderbilt? Well, um, very, very similar to what Mara said. I think um, you know, one of the things that we don't really know with Delta, the, the data that I referred to earlier with enhanced clearance of the virus from people who are previously vaccinated versus unvaccinated that came out of Singapore. One of the disturbing aspects of that is in the unvaccinated people, they were shedding quite a lot of virus for more than 20 days based on at least cycle threshold of the PCR test. And so again, Delta is a little bit of a game changer because we know especially in unvaccinated people that at the time of diagnosis, they're shedding over a thousand fold more virus than, than we saw with people infected with the original SARS-CoV-2. And it may be because they start with such high amounts of virus that the RNA sort of tails out much longer than we saw with the original SARS-CoV-2. 
we don't know from the Singapore data whether that RNA represents transmissible virus that's actually a threat to anybody. And I think that's a really important caveat. In studies prior to Delta, it really did suggest in non-severe illness that by 10 days uh, after the uh, onset of symptoms or onset of discovery of the virus that you weren't really shedding transmissible virus. And if you were severely ill or hospitalized, on rare instances, it went out as far as about three weeks, about 20 days. And that drove a lot of the types of recommendation, uh, for example, that Mara just said that they do at their hospital. But Delta has thrown a wrench into this. And honestly, we don't have a lot of evidence to guide whether those policies should be changing. So we just have a few minutes left here, and I think there's some really key points that we brought up. And, and thank you to everyone for answering the questions uh, that we've gotten from our audience. And I think it's probably appropriate to uh, really talk about the drive-home point that we think we're all talking about has been around vaccine safety. So David, you put together this lovely slide for us. Perhaps you could just walk us through these sort of summating points. And then Helen Marie, perhaps through the, the graphical abstract we'll do next from our, our guidance document. Yeah, I'll do this quickly because I referred to some of these data as we spoke earlier. But one of the things to be able to reassure patients uh, of reproductive age, for sure, is that there is zero data that the vaccines cause infertility or make it difficult to conceive. Um, the vaccines are recommended by the CDC and the uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology for use in pregnant individuals and those who are lactating. And you can see from these other very rare sort of lightning strike events that yes, we see anaphylaxis in two to five people per million who get the mRNA vaccines, but we watch people for 15 minutes after vaccination. And by now, so many people are aware of this, that they know that if they have a severe allergy to one of the components of the vaccine, that they should choose an alternate like a J&J &J type of vaccine. We talked about myocarditis and pericarditis, and we talked about VIT being very rare events. Guillain-Barre, similarly, about nine, eight or nine events per million doses, and we're just not seeing long-term side effects popping up a year out, really, from vaccinating people. So it is great that we've been able to pick up on these very rare adverse events, which traditionally we would never have seen uh, but with the type of oversight we're doing with this massive rollout, we're finding these. But I do urge people to keep these in perspective that I still drive to the grocery store, even though there's a measurable risk that I'll be involved in a fatal accident. These are kind of that level of rarity. Perfect. And I think that's a really good segue to take us home, uh, Helen Marie, with uh, the submitting parts from our, our guidance document. Yeah, so the big take-home points were that you need to understand and expect reactogenicity. Uh, vaccinate patients as early as possible prior to elective or planned surgeries. Uh, thrombosis risk in cardiac uh, patients in particular still remains unclear. That's still developing. We know that one dose is better than none. And that shared decision-making, as multiple panelists have pointed out, when it comes to vaccination is important. Just having that conversation is really important. And I think our time here is coming to an end. I know I can speak for all of us when I say that I learned a lot on this topic over the past hour. Uh, we acknowledge obviously that the landscape is rapidly changing and that the challenges we're facing today may be completely different from challenges that we face tomorrow. We know that now more than ever, we have to remain agile as CT surgeons and other providers to continue to face this pandemic head on. And I just wanna thank uh, Mara, David, uh, Dan and um, and Adam and Rakesh, obviously, for taking their time to provide this uh, really detailed webinar for us. Yeah, I, I, I could though, Simmons, this has really been a lot of fun. And as I always learn a lot from everyone on this panel constantly. And I think we had a really rich and engaging conversation and great questions from the audience as well, really highlighting the need to talk about our new normal following COVID. And there's some questions that are really pertaining to this. So this is a, a great segue into an upcoming conference we have coming in just three weeks time. This is the STS Annual Perioperative and Critical Care Conference. Well, we'll talk about many issues related to COVID and post-COVID and how we recover and what a new normal looks like. There'll be 14 sessions in a virtual program over two days, September 10th, 11. I encourage you all to register your teams for this great meeting. And the, uh, for the first time, we're uh, co-branding this with the APA CVS as well. The registration links for you at the bottom. Thank you again, everybody. And I'll turn it back to Michelle Rush at the SDS to uh, take us out. 
Thank you, Dr. Aurora and Dr. Merritt Janor, and thank you to all of our panelists for your participation and insight. We invite you to become a member of STS if you're not one already. You'll enjoy a variety of discounts, benefits, and opportunities to help you grow professionally. Learn more at sts.org membership. The STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook is now available for purchase. Online or mobile, it is the most complete and authoritative resource for CT surgical information in the world. The latest update of the eBook includes 25 new chapters in the adult and pediatric cardiac surgery volume. Learn more and subscribe at scs.org ebook. Stay the date for the next event in the STS webinar series coming up on Thursday, September 23rd. The program will address the updated blood management guideline recently published by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, the Society of Cardiovascular Anesthesiologists, the American Society of Extracorporeal Technology, and the Society for the Advancement of Blood Management. Thank you and have a good night.